Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. My name is Chris. Uh, I have... (laughs) I am, you know how I have we have a few kind of ongoing series uh, of stories that we do here yeah. at Lost in Science. Uh, Triple well, Creature Feature being one of them. Yeah, that is. I've got a new one that I wasn't expecting this to be a series, but um, you haven't even discussed this with us. Wow. No, no, this is a, this is an unexpected one. So you remember, like um, in March this year, the famous physicist Stephen Hawking died. Yes. And shortly after that, um, his final paper was released, and I did a story where I I read Stephen Hawking's final paper, so you didn't have to. Yeah. Well, now another final paper has been released. So we have a new series of Stephen Hawking's final papers, which I read so you don't have to. Is this like how, how John Farnham and his, and his, like, this is the last tour I'm ever going to do? The farewell and, tour. Yeah, the farewell tour, like, number 10. It's a bit like that. It's probably more like it's just all the people who have kind of tracks in the studio that they're going, <laughs> oh, we can turn this into an album, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and like, I, so how they made a Beatles song 30 years after the Beatles broke up and stuff. Yeah, that yeah, kind of thing, right. yeah. Um, yeah, so this one is called Black Hole Entropy and Soft Hair. I'm going to explain what all that means. I wonder, um, yeah, do you have any idea about how many more papers are in the works? No, but it's exciting to, to ponder, isn't it? It is exciting to ponder. Well, last week it was Migratory Bird Day, which actually happens twice a year. Anyway, anyway. Um, well, that kind of makes sense because they've got to come back. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes, they yes. leave and then they all come back. So, you know, <laughs> yes. makes perfect sense. So to celebrate, I'm talking going to talk to Millie Formby, who is an incredible woman. She is a zoologist and also a flyer of microlight planes. And she is planning to follow the migratory birds Migratory shorebirds, to be specific, um, sure. they're her f- <laughs> their favourite type of migratory bird and highlight the plight of migratory birds around the world. So she's going to talk to us about some of her upcoming trips. So there's one next year where she's going to fly her microlight around Australia and then she's planning in a couple of years to go all the way to the Arctic tundra in a microlight following, sh- following shorebirds. Stu, what do you have for us? Well... Last week I was talking about Donna Strickland, who just won the Nobel Prize for Physics, and I kept reading all about different women in science, and a lot of them are not uh, as well-known as they probably should be, and I dug up someone's name. Her name is Cecilia Payne, and she actually made a massive discovery in physics uh, in the 20s, but kind of didn't really get much recognition for it because, well, it was the 20s. So I'm going to tell you all about what she discovered and uh, how she figured it out that she was kind of a bit cleverer than some of her male contemporaries, which probably also went a little way to holding her back a bit too. But uh, yeah, yeah, so stay tuned for the story of Cecilia Payne. Excellent. Well, on with the show. Yes, you listen to Lost in Science, and I am reading Stephen Hawking's latest Final paper. I hope you finish reading it. Um, are you reading? Is that what you're doing? You're oh, no, read, I'm not it read it out loud. I'm not going to read it out loud. No, oh, no. Oh God, no. help us all. <laughs> Stephen Hawking's paper, read by. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Probably not a lot of downloads on that audio book. No, possibly not. Look, okay, yeah. So, yeah, there are some things we need to note about this. Um, as I said, this one is called Black Hole Entropy and Soft Hair. It's co-authored by Sasha Hako, Malcolm J. Perry, and Andrew Strominger. Is this, so this is basically just like a, a whole lot of people were collaborating with him, presumably, and... Yeah, yeah. Haven't, haven't all published their work yet. Yeah, that was one of my other points. So this is basically, this paper has a little disclaimer in it saying that it represents their status of their work up to, as they put it there, at the end of their time with Stephen Hawking. So it's not a, totally a complete kind of final say on this topic. Okay. The other thing I want to point out is I say, I read this paper. Well, it's it's pretty technical, so I did my best. Yeah. It's all we ask of you, Chris. That's that's right, and that's all. I, that's all you're going to get. Um, <laughs> look, now, honestly, if I started reading it to you, you would very quickly not know what was going on. Would it, be, it would be very hard to convey because it's probably highly mathematical. There's a lot of maths. There's a lot of words yeah. you wouldn't... I didn't. I had trouble understanding like Virasoro algebras and diffeomorphisms and stuff like that. Soft hair, I can understand though. Well, do you, can you? Well, let's, let's look at that. Let's, let's, let's talk about what this is about. <laughs> let's look at your soft hair. Yeah. Okay, let's, talk, let's dive into black hole entropy and soft hair. Okay, so this, this is a paper that is uh, addressing the black hole information paradox. So black holes, you know what a black hole is, don't you? Yes. Yes. It's a region of gravity so strong that nothing can escape its pull, even light. That's correct, yes. Ding, 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 points to Stu. Yeah, so it's um, the event horizon of black holes, the point where the gravity gets so strong that not even light can escape. So basically no one knows what's beyond the event horizon. Uh, so anything that falls in for all intents and purposes, is is gone. It's gone for good. And this is this is what led to the famous no-hair theorem of black holes. Basically, what this means is that... Also known as the alopecia No, it's not theorem. alopecia because it's not balding. It's, it's got no hair at all. So, you know, it's not, a pro, it's not losing its hair. It had no hair. It has no hair. That's alopecia. No, alopecia is when your hair falling out, isn't it? Like, you wouldn't go like... Next week, we'll get an alopecia specialist in and clear this right. up once yeah. and for all. Yeah, so once what, and for all. Essentially, what it's saying is it doesn't matter what a black hole was made out of or what's fallen into the black hole. When you're outside it, the only things that you can tell about it is its mass, how fast it's spinning, if it's spinning, and whether it has electric charge. There's nothing else you can tell, and it's basically it's just a bald sphere. Essentially, it has no hair. Right. Now, the problem arises when you introduce quantum theory, because in quantum theory, particles are described by a mathematical formula called a wave function, which basically encapsulates all the information you know about this particle. And one of the things about this wave function will change over time as the particle moves and interacts with other things, but it can't lose information. But when one of these particles falls into a black hole, that information is, is gone forever. Uh, Stephen Hawking showed in 1974 as well that the most famous discovery, the black holes give off radiation, known as Hawking radiation. They eventually evaporate. So essentially things can fall in, the black hole then evaporates, and it's like it's just all gone. All the information is just gone for good. It's just disappeared into nothingness. So this is a problem. This is basically a conflict with, um, with quantum theory and gravity. You know, so it's just why it's called a paradox. Now, physicists love these kind of things because this is basically testing physics to its limit. You know, it's when basically physics is breaking down, and this is why they love black holes and like to talk about them. And it's not just theoretical because we're pretty certain that black holes exist. We've seen their effects on other things. We're sure they're out there. So these, whatever these paradoxes are, this stuff is actually going on in the universe. And so if you actually want to understand how the universe works, we need to find the solution to these paradoxes. You with me so far? Yes. Yeah. Basically, they're interested because when they get to the extreme ends of physics, like all the other stuff kind of makes yeah. sense. But when you get to these extreme events, like a black hole forming, yeah. it it 
pushes the edge of what we understand. So that's obviously why they keep looking at them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Everything else is, ah, oh, we've sorted all that out, but we've got to understand this because if we don't understand these, then the rest of the physics doesn't make sense, yeah. I guess. So, like, yeah, and the ultimately, I mean, ultimately the idea is if you had a complete theory of the whole universe, you know, you understood quantum gravity and this kind of stuff, you would be able to answer these questions, but we don't have that yet. But then the hope is that by solving these puzzles, then they'll give you a clue to those ultimate theories. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the solution that Hawking and his colleagues were investigating was something called soft hair. And so this is kind of, it's like a soft version of a black hole having hair. And, and essentially, instead of saying that all the information falls into the black hole and is lost forever, it kind of sort of collects just outside the surface. He has, they came up with this idea that there's this sort of cloud of particles that are just outside the event horizon in the black hole and that store all the information. Are and they called like, um, like shampoo particles or something? No, they're, they're the hair. They're the soft hair. Oh, that's the soft hair. Yeah, so it's not right. kind of hair belonging to the black hole. It's not actually on the event horizon. It's just outside the event horizon. It's a soft version of it having hair. Oh. Like, like a dust yeah. bunny around the outside. Yeah, a bit like a dust bunny around yeah. the outside, you know. So Ew. So, yeah, it's kind of an intriguing idea. In this paper, what they did is they did some calculations to show that this soft hair, you know, if it's consistent with the predictions of Hawking radiation from the 1970s. So it all kind of matches up with what you expect the temperature for a black hole to be based on the, the amount of radiation that it's giving off. So that's all this really is showing that it's kind of consistent with the soft hair theorem is consistent with what we know about black holes. So it doesn't really, it's not a complete proof to solve the information paradox. It's just kind of meant to show that it's a plausible idea and and they, they hope that some other theorists will pick it up and, you know, show that it's right. So, yeah, there you go. Like, it's pretty important to understand how gravity and quantum theory work together. And it's pretty cool to see that Stephen Hawking was still working on these kind of interesting ideas right up until the end. And, yeah, I can say, you know, we can look forward to what his next big achievement will be. I'm Maggie Adam Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science. So last week was International Migratory Bird Day, a chance for people around the world to unify their voices to the challenges faced by birds that fly thousands of kilometres every year. Amelia Formby, zoologist and pilot, is doing everything in her power to help these birds, including learning how to fly the migration pathway herself. And today to tell us all about it, she is on Lost in Science. Welcome, Amelia. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me on the show. Talk us through your background from bird lover to migratory pilot of micro light planes. Sure. So my background is in behavioural ecology and the arts. And then I moved over to Perth. And during that time, I've been volunteering for the Victorian Weather Studies Group and the Australasian Weather Studies Group, banding and flagging shorebirds around Victoria and up in northwest Australia as well. And um, when I moved to Perth, started working at the University of WA and had this idea that I could follow the migration route of the shorebirds after chatting with a friend about flying microlights and um, yeah, came up with this idea that I could follow <laughs> and learn how to fly a microlight. And since then, I started learning how to fly a microlight, and that's been almost three years now. Wow. I began to do that. So is this a specific migration of a particular sort of bird that you love? Yeah, initially it was. So initially my idea was to fly from Australia all the way to Siberia and back following the East Asian Australasian flyway, the flyways 
what we call a birds migration highway and it's what the birds in Australia use. And I was going to follow the smallest shorebird species of the 50 odd species that visit Australia and it's called a, a redneck stint and it only weighs as much as a Tim Tam, about 25 oh. grams, you know, sparrow sized birds. So wow. I chose that one because I, I just find it absolutely mind boggling that a it, bird that tiny can fly, you know, 25,000 kilometres every year just to breed up in the Arctic. It's pretty phenomenal. And then all the way back again? Yeah, so the, the round trip is 25,000 kilometres. So they can do hops on their 12,500 kilometre journey up to the Arctic. Sometimes they'll fly up to 5,000 kilometres in one go. But they, they stop several times on the way to eat more food and get more fuel on board so they can make the distance. So obviously shorebirds are some of the most threatened migratory birds around the world. Is that yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Most endangered group of birds in the world. And so your project, this, this idea to follow them on their migratory path, it's to raise awareness around this, is it? So one of the things that kept coming up when I was doing shorebird conservation was that not a lot of people actually knew about these birds and also that the wetland habitats that they rely on are also some of the most endangered habitats in the world. So, um, yeah, I, I really wanted a way to be able to get this information out there because when you tell people about shorebirds, they just get inspired. Like the story of shorebirds is a naturally inspiring story and once people hear it. So actually getting that information out there, though, is another story. So I saw the flight around, or the, the microlite flight, as a way to draw attention by creating a spectacle around a conservation issue. So that was my initial idea. I didn't really have a a really clear why when I first started learning to fly a microlite. But over time, like the wing thread journey or dream has kind of grown in scope. And um, now it's really become about connecting people with one another and using the shorebirds as a model to teach us how we're connected to one another through global ecological networks. You know, their the migration path is uh, like a chain with links in it that links us to other people through 23 countries and four continents throughout the East Asian Australasian flyway. So it's really about understanding how our local wetland habitats have a place within that global context so that we can understand how or why it's important to protect those local habitats for the birds and for us too because we rely on the same ecosystems for our own health and wellbeing. It's an incredibly inspiring feeling to know that the birds that visit us you know in our estuaries or on our beaches are the same birds that are making these huge migrations every year it's it's awe-inspiring yeah absolutely and it's really cool as well um like with the banding and flagging work that i do with the waiter studies group you know it's really satisfying if we catch a bird that has been banded in russia because we have specific leg flags that are different colours that correspond to different countries in the flyway. So depending on where they banded, they get a different colour code. So it's just amazing. You're like, wow, this is a Russian bird, or this is one from Bohai Bay in China, or this is from the Philippines. And, you know, we've been tracking these birds for 40 years now, and we know some of them are, you know, up to 30 years old, which means that they will have flown the distance to the moon and, and back just on migration alone. Oh, my goodness. Amazing, yes. Wow, yeah. what an achievement. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
Yeah. Now you mentioned wing threads. So this is your program. And so what's the current iteration of wing threads? What does it look like at the moment? Yeah, so it's called, uh, the current iteration <laughs> is called Wing Threads Flight Around Oz. So obviously um, flying to the Arctic and back in a microlight, which is a type of powered hang glider, is a pretty physical feat and requires a lot of training and experience. So um, doing a flight around Australia first to really test my skills out as a pilot, it'll tell me, A, if I'm physically capable of doing something like this, and B, how long it will take, because uh, the distance around Australia is about the same distance as what it is to the Arctic and back. So the plan is to fly around Australia and stop at major shorebird sites all around the coast and visit schools to introduce students to migratory shorebirds. And we're doing that in collaboration with BirdLife Australia. When will you be starting the journey? Yep, so the plan is to take off from Broome, which is the shorebird capital of Australia, in uh, March next year. And that's when the shorebirds take off on their northward migration as well. So I'm going to see if I can do a lap of Australia in the same amount of time it takes a group of shorebirds that we've fitted with satellite tags to fly to the Arctic and back. So it's a little bit of a race. (laughs) And we'll be able to post updates online as well of my progress around the country compared to where the shorebirds are in the flyway on migration during the flight next year. So I'm going to see if I can get back to Broome by October, so March to October next year. And if people, as I'm sure they will want to, want um, to follow you on your adventures, how can they do that? (laughs) Yep, you can follow us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. The handle is at Wing Threads or on Twitter at Wing underscore Threads. And the website is wingthreads.com. How are you funding this incredible project? Yes, I'm so glad you asked. We're planning a crowdfunding campaign uh, at the moment that's going to run in December. It's going to be called the 12 Days of Stintmas. <laughs> Stints obviously being a sh- the short, the redneck stints, of course. Yeah, like the shorebirds. So we're going to um, do that for the 24 days of December leading up to Christmas. And we've had some awesome prizes donated for that as well that people will be able to, you know, sponsor a kilometre on the flight and go in the prize draw to win those too. So stay tuned. Keep abreast of the, the website. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, Amelia, thank you so much for coming and chatting on Lost in Science. And um, we wish you all the best for the fundraising campaign, the 12 Days of Stintmas. Mm-hmm. So please stay in touch while you are on the fly. Absolutely. Thank you. Check out Amelia's adventures at Wing Threads on Instagram or at wing underscore threads on Twitter, which I guess is the more appropriate social media to use, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Amelia. Thanks, Claire. Do you guys know what the sun is made of? Helium. Hydrogen. Helium and hydrogen, exactly. Um, And as They Might Be Giants told us, the sun is a mass of incandescent gas, but that's wrong. They issued a correction They song. did. They did. And they updated <laughs> they this to a, a new song. song. They did. And it's called, and it goes, the sun is a miasma of incandescent plasma, because that is a more accurate description of what's going on in the sun. But predominantly the sun is made up of hydrogen. And because it's also a gigantic nuclear furnace, 
It also contains relatively large amounts of helium because that's the product of the fusion of hydrogen. But less than 100 years ago, this was not how we understood the composition of the sun and the stars. And it was widely accepted that the sun and all of the other stars we can see were basically consisted of the same elements that we find on Earth. And this kind of seems a bit hard to comprehend because stars are massive nuclear furnaces and the Earth is not. So how they sort of rationalise it, I'm not entirely sure. But Well, I'm sure at that point they didn't really know too much about the whole nuclear furnace bit either. Well, that's true. That is true. But this understanding of the composition of stars was basically that we know that their hydrogen and helium was basically down to the work of one scientist and a thesis published in 1925. So Cecilia Payne, who was later Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin, because she got married, um, was an English-born scientist who developed an interest in astronomy after hearing a lecture from someone who studied a solar eclipse in 1919. Eddington? Yeah, Eddington. She went to a lecture by Arthur Eddington, who was observing the eclipse to gather evidence for Einstein's theory of relativity, and found it. And Cecilia Payne was so fascinated that she went home and wrote the lecture down from her memory. Yeah, pretty amazing. So that's how interested she was. That's how amazing she found this lecture, that she remembered it all, wrote it all down and went, yeah, and, you know, read over it again because she liked it so much. So she was interested in physics based on this uh, lecture, and she went to Cambridge and said, can I read some books on physics and astronomy? And they said, sure, read these books. And she said, I've already read all those books. And they said, oh, well, you can look in our library and read all of our other books in there. So anyway, she basically read all of those, but then she realised that Cambridge were not ever likely to give her a proper job. Uh, she was probably maybe would have been a teacher at Cambridge, but she would have never been awarded a high degree. So she left and went to the United States. So that was based on the fact that she was a woman? Basically, yeah. yeah. She realised they just were not going to consider her uh, for a higher position. So she went to Harvard, and at Harvard they had a huge collection of spectral photographs of stars, which is a way of kind of separating out the colours of a star on a photographic plate, and you can see all of the different colours that are being emitted. So it was known since the mid-19th century that various elements gave off particular wavelengths of visible light when they were heated, and in the upper layers of stars, they absorb some wavelengths of light. And so based on this, the absorption of the light leaves dark lines in these spectral photographs, And this can be used to differentiate between different stars. But this had led astronomers to conclude that elements like iron and calcium were present in large quantities in stars, like they are on Earth. We have a lot of calcium and iron and heavy elements. So they saw a signature for those in the spectrum, did they? Yeah, well, that's what they thought they were seeing. So it was believed that if the Earth was heated to the same temperatures as the Sun, it would give off a similar spectrum. But this was shown to be incorrect. Another woman working at Harvard, Annie Jump Cannon, had classified stars according to the spectral images into seven categories, which they thought represented a scale of temperature. So there was hotter stars and cooler stars, and that's what these categories were representing. But nobody had figured out a way to quantify it, so it was just sort of an idea, and it wasn't even a hypothesis, really, because they had no way of testing it. But Cecilia Payne was studying what was at the time a new field of physics, quantum physics, and she realised there was a relationship between very high temperatures and the ionisation of different elements in a star. The ionisation is when electrons are stripped from various atoms, 
but it also has an effect on their absorption of different light wavelengths. So the light wavelengths that were getting absorbed were not representing accurate ah. figures of the elements that they thought they were seeing. So they just thought they were less normal kind of like molecular, say hydrogen or whatever like that, but it was actually ionized. Yeah. Right, and that's a different spectrum. And so it was, yeah, mm. so it was, it was letting different wavelengths of light through yeah. and that's what they were picking up. So she also recognised that the, the effects they were observing were mainly due to variations in temperature of the stars and not really anything to do with the relative abundance of heavier elements that everyone had thought. Okay. So she wrote all this down in a doctoral thesis and it was sent to Princeton to Professor Henry Norris Russell who said that her findings were clearly impossible. And this may be because Henry Norris Russell was one of the guys who said that if you heated up the earth to the right temperature, it would look like the sun. So he had some stake in saying that she was wrong. So in order to get her thesis passed, Cecilia put in a disclaimer saying that her calculations of the abundance of hydrogen and helium in stars was almost certainly not real. Oh. And then put her thesis out with that disclaimer. Obviously, she was right. So, um, she they made her put a thing saying, this Well, is, this is... whether they made her do it or whether she just went, I still want a job after all of this, so I'll just write that in so I can get it passed and examined. Anyway, she eventually turned her thesis into a book called Stellar Atmospheres and continued to research and publish and teach but was known for many years only as a technical assistant to her supervisor. So she was basically just uh, an assistant, even though she'd published all this stuff and pretty much changed solar astronomy physics for good. Like, it's very widely accepted that she was right. So did people like then pick up on what she'd done or did someone else rediscover it? Uh, no, no, no. They, they, it's well accepted and, and later physicists have said that hers was the greatest paper in, in astronomy ever written and things like that, which is, you know, that's a pretty big call. Mm. Um, there's some pretty amazing astronomical papers out there. But, yeah, she was, she was widely recognised and she did keep teaching. And in 1956, over 30 years since her thesis, she was made a full professor at Harvard and was the first woman ever to be recognised as such. So she was the first female full professor at Harvard. But it did take 30 years after her groundbreaking thesis was published. And she passed away in 1979, but in 1976 she was awarded, and I'm not sure if this was a double-edged sword or not, she was awarded the Henry Norris Russell Prize in Astronomy <laughs> for, for being such a genius astronomer. <laughs> but I'm not sure how she would have taken that. She took it with good grace, of course, and gave a great speech on, on uh, how, how discovering new things was the prime reason for getting into, uh, into science. But, uh, yeah, Cecilia Payne, I just thought, after reading about her that and and I had not heard the name before so I thought that's a pretty amazing uh groundbreaking discovery but once again being a woman is not helping in getting recognition for the work that she did and that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Uh, now, Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Uh, now, we would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci, that's S-C-I, at gmail.com, or you can like our page on Facebook and send us messages there, or you can 
Find us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science One. You can look up our podcast. If you're through a podcast service like iTunes or something like that, you're allowed to give reviews. Then please give us a good review because then that helps us reach more people. It makes us come up better in searches. Um, or you can just listen to us on the radio like a lot of people do. Same time next week when Stu, Chris, and Claire will get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.